Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. And what I realized in writing the book that I don't think I realized at the time was how much my relationship to the act of traveling had evolved with me as I grew. Travel is this crutch. It's this way for me to run away from my life, to hide from my problems. And you find that I use travel in an unhealthy, codependent way. I use it in this way where it's almost like a drug, where it's like life gets hard and I hit the road and I look for every excuse I can to just run away. And that changes when I make the decision to call off my wedding and I make the decision to stop avoiding my life, but instead to face it head on. That was Nikki Vargas, today's guest, talking about the relationship with travel she had early on. And you're going to hear how that relationship developed and changed over the years, where it is today, and what travel has given her in her life. As we bring you the final installment of Choosing a Life of Travel Week here on the show, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, it's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. Choosing a life of travel, like choosing anything, often means sacrifice. It means making tough decisions, tough life decisions. Our guest today, Nikki Vargas, is no exception. Originally from Bogota, Colombia, Nikki is a senior editor at Fodor's Travel, a published author and a public speaker. And we chat about her new book, Call You When I Land. That time, of course, when she called off her wedding only two weeks before the big day and became a runaway bride. No big deal. You know, just a small life event. And uh, how she built her career as a travel journalist, her experience reconnecting with her Colombian roots, some of her favorite destinations, advice for making tough decisions, and living a life of travel, and much more. You can find all of her work at NikkiVargas.com. We'll link up to that in the show notes. Stick around after the conversation on the back end. I've got a couple quotes that I think illustrates uh, one of the paradoxes of travel that ties in with this interview and this conversation today. It sparked a little reminder also that might help you see something you're working on 
or through in your life just a little bit differently. So stick around for that. And one last reminder, zerototravel.com slash newsletter. Would love to welcome you in to the community off the podcast. It's free to sign up and uh, you can get the weekly newsletter there. So go ahead and do that. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Nikki and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Nikki Vargas, it's been a hot second. It, oh my gosh, it has. I was like <laughs> geeking out when this opportunity came around and I was telling Noel, I'm like, oh my God, this is like early days of my career when we first spoke. Yes, I just <laughs> looked it up as a matter of fact, and it looks like we spoke in March of 2015. You were on the podcast. Wow. And wow. that was, yeah, a little over, I guess I was... About a almost a, a little over a year in, into it, maybe almost a year and a half. Yeah. Gosh, that is so. so amazing because it's like when we spoke, I was just getting started at, on this journey of trying to be a travel writer and trying to be a travel editor. And I had just called off the wedding and I had like made all these life decisions. Um, so it's fascinating to talk to you now, like years later and kind of see where it ended up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, totally. And yeah, we had some collaboration going for a little while too, which was super yeah. nice. And uh, <laughs> it's just been really cool to see because I've been, you know, keeping tabs, seeing what's going on over there with all your stuff. You got the books <laughs> and we're going we're gonna to talk about your book today. But anyway, it's just so cool. And I mean, a lot, I mean, we have a lot to talk about today. You mentioned calling off a wedding. That's going to be a, a big topic. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're making the rounds. I mean, this is what happens when you write a memoir, right? Then you have to talk about your life. How does that feel? You have to get comfortable with it. I mean, that's what it is. It's it's a process. It was it was a process to put the emotion and everything on the page, and now it's a process to get very comfortable talking about what I put on the page. But there's so many little like milestones throughout the journey of writing this book and then the business of publishing a book and everything that comes with it. And I remember early on, one of the most surreal moments was talking to my publisher about it and talking about myself in the third person, which is so weird. But like when you're talking about the business of the book, whether it's the marketing or the promotion or the editing, whatever it is, you're talking about it in a business sense. And so you kind of remove yourself from that character and from that story in order to talk about it more from a business mindset. And I just found that so jarring in the beginning, but now I'm like used to it. So I'm like talking about like, yeah, Nikki, you know, when she called off her wedding, yeah, that could make for an interesting, interesting part to play up. And it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, you're you're constructing a narrative, except it's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're the senior travel editor at Fedors or Fodders. I'm sorry. You know, I, no, 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 don't be. Uh, which I one get, is it? I get all different pronunciations, so it's Fodors. Uh, okay. My mom says Fodors. I've got Fodders, and I've also got Frommers, which is an entirely different company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, you've done your own blogging. You launched your own magazine, and we'll talk about all these things. But our original interview was on uh, tips on freelance travel writing, and part of the job, or your core job, for many years, is to 
curate a story, right? Like you're, you're, you're off and you're, you're on an adventure and now you have to take this experience and put it into an article that's uh, whatever the goal is to entertain, to inform all of the above usually. And now you've had to curate your life into a book essentially, or a portion of your life, I should say. Yeah. Was there a creative process you did to kind of like brain dump your life and then start organizing it into a narrative? Like, how does that work? I've never even thought about attempting to write a memoir. Yeah. It's uh, one of the first things I did was I wrote an outline. So when I had published my first book, Wanderous, which is a very different beast, that's more of a travel resource. I knew I wanted to ride the momentum to try to get a second book deal. And I wasn't represented by a literary agent when Wanderous came around. It was a very roundabout situation where actually an editor at Penguin had reached out to me and my co-founder of Unearth Woman about the idea of Wanderous. So this time, I really wanted to find a literary agent to sort of help broker that future book deal and um, just represent me as an author. So I had asked my editor uh, for recommendations of literary agents, and I started sending them ideas, which I'm embarrassed now because it was so like now that I know how you're supposed to approach a literary agent I'm embarrassed how I did and so I approached my now agent with the concept of this book and I think it was like a two-sentence email which basically amounted to I want to write a book about myself (laughs) and um she to her credit She gave me the time of day largely because my editor was a good friend of hers and recommended me, but she worked with me for months and she really made me think through that concept of writing a book about yourself. I had to write an outline, a 30 page plus outline. I had to break down the book chapter by chapter, writing a summary of what each chapter would say. And that really forced me to look at where do I want to start this story? What are the moments that are the most compelling to a reader? And how can I keep that momentum going throughout the book? Because when you write a memoir, you don't want that memoir to be just a dump of your diary. You don't you don't want it to just be a list of factoids in this very linear way. You want it to be a story for readers. And so you really have to look through your life and sort of suss out the parts of it that are the most interesting and compelling to a reader. And that is, um, that was the process. And I thankfully kept a lot of journals throughout my life, which helped me revisit this moment or these various moments in time and kind of put myself back there emotionally. And when I wrote the book, I wrote it in present tense, which really helped as well to sort of talk about being in those certain moments and really pull that emotion out of me, even though I'm now 10 years plus past those moments in time and I've emotionally moved on, writing in present tense really helped with writing Call You When I Land. Yeah, that's uh, great that you had all the journals. I I like to imagine that there's a multiverse and in one of them, there's a, a me that has lived the same life, but they've kept record of it. They've, they've been journaling the whole time and I could just reach through and be like, can I borrow those? I want to, I want to remember what I did. I want to remember these moments. And that's like a nice gift. I mean, that's one of the gifts of journaling 
but you know, you have the knowledge and the skill set and the experience and the network to to write any book about travel. But you wrote a memoir, and I'm just wondering for you, was that something you needed to to write? And I don't mean contractually; I mean cathartically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the thing is, is that, and I'm sure many people can attest to this. There is so much growth in your 20s and the person you are when you enter your 20s is very different from the person you are when you exit your 20s. And I had made all of these, in retrospect, audacious decisions in my 20s that now that I'm in turning 36, I can look back and say, wow, I see how all of those decisions that were so scary at the time how they all panned out and how they got me to where I needed to go. And I wanted to just write about this moment in my life. And even though I'm still relatively young, as far as like writing a memoir goes, I wanted to write about this time and capture it in vivid detail, which meant writing that now while the memories are fresh enough that I can really make them feel vibrant or vibrant on the page Um, but where it's also far enough that I can kind of look back and layer in a level of reflection that I may not have been able to at 28 or 29. Yeah. I love it. I think that's, uh, an important point you just made. I, I, and I'm going to pump you up here, Nikki, because I know you're an awesome writer. And on the outside, I think people might think of people writing, writing memoirs as, as, oh, you've lived a whole life and now you're writing about your whole life. But I think there's a lot of value in, in writing something that you're still close to that has impacted you so much. But like you said, you have enough distance from it that you're able to analyze it to the point where you've now become like a third party character that you're talking about, you know? Yeah. Point, but <laughs> Yeah, you make a lot of tough decisions in life, and you certainly did in in this book. I want to talk about making tough decisions, but before we get into the whole runaway bride thing, I think that was one of the first tough decisions you made, or at least in the book. I wanted to congratulate you on your honeymoon and getting married, because we haven't recorded till now because you were on your honeymoon. Oh my gosh, yes. Thank you. I um. I did eventually get married. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever think? <laughs> I mean, it's so funny The it really comes full circle in life and on the page that, you know, the book starts from this place of running away from a wedding and running away specifically to the jungles of Argentina to Iguazu National Park. Great place and to run away, by the great way. Great place to run Highly away. Highly recommended place to run away. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Gorgeous. <laughs> And um, and that's where I got engaged last year, almost to the day I got engaged at Iguazu National Park. And there was something just so beautifully symbolic about that where I never thought I would go back there. And so to be back there at 34 and get engaged and do it in the same place where I had once run away from a wedding – uh, it was really, really, really powerful, and um, and it translated amazingly to the book. <laughs> By the way, that's something we have common. I too ran away from a wedding. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> so we can we can bond on that. <laughs> wow. Well, you know what? Kudos. I think I think it's something to be proud of. I know that there is a lot 
that comes after that decision that is very scary. But I actually really applaud the strength to be able to decide this is my life and I'm going to make a decision as scary as it is to take back that life. And so congrats. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's talk about that moment because, you know, you were just a couple weeks away from from the wedding. And, And I mean, in my case, it was nothing was really planned yet, but it was marching towards it. But I mean, you had, I imagine, you know, dresses, invitations, the whole thing. And, you know, it's your whole life. So it's easy to sit back and say, uh, well, yeah, you know, if I don't want to do this, then I shouldn't do this. But it's so darn easy to just do the thing that's that's easy, which is you have to set up. It's you had a moment where you're really honest with yourself and you talk about that in the book, but then the reality of the, the letting people down or having to tell people and, and all the practical stuff that needs to happen. How did you kind of get to the point where this ties with, with kind of like making tough decisions to get to the point where you kind of have to get over what people think are going to think of you in some ways, right? If there's one overarching theme about making tough decisions like that, I mean, there's a lot of things to it, But the outside external pressure part of it is about detaching, I feel, from the pushback or the blowback or whatever the case is. And you're going to have people that support you, other people that are whispering and whatever. It's just inevitable. Yeah. How did you tackle that? And maybe I'm fishing for some advice here for anybody that's (laughs) facing a tough decision where they know they might get a lot of blowback and people might not be happy. Yeah. Well... Well, to begin, uh, hold on to your hat here. I actually called it off a week before the wedding day. So I had run to Argentina two weeks before I was supposed to get married. And when I went to Iguazu National Park, it was a week into that trip. And I was days away from getting married. So that's that's insane. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. Um, You know, I write in the book that calling off a wedding is like dropping a rock in a lake or in a pond and being forced to watch the ripples fan out from impact. And the first ripple of that is very much all the stuff and the financial losses, the wedding gown altered to fit only your body, the financial losses of the non-refundable deposits and and for everything, the venue, the cater and everything – And then the next ripple, of course, are the inconvenience and financial losses imposed on 100-plus guests who rearranged their schedules, who went out of their way to take time off, to book flights, to book hotels. And then that, that impact sort of goes further out to a further ripple, which is speculation. Speculation as to what happened, why you didn't go through with it, was there an affair, was there just all of this speculation around it. And so it's it's a painful process. It absolutely is. And having just gotten married and having just come off a year of wedding planning, I I'm truly like that's I'm I'm shocked that I I had the audacity to make that decision, but here's the thing. I uh I was so emotionally removed from the process of wedding planning in a way that is very opposite from what I just went through as far as planning my recent wedding. And I think that emotional distance made it easier for me to walk away 
not fully understanding the the consequences of that decision. And it wasn't until I made that decision and had this front row seat to just the carnage, quite honestly, of what followed that I realized the fallout from that choice. But I wouldn't regret it. And I am so glad I made it because I didn't want to have that wedding uh, and stand up in front of everyone I know and love and respect and promise myself to a man that I knew already I had fallen out of love with and that it wouldn't work. And I'm so glad I didn't go through with the wedding day because so many people say, well, well, you could have just gone through with it and gotten a divorce. But the fact that I didn't and I just had my wedding last month um, was so special because it was the first time. It was my first time walking down the aisle. It was my first time saying my vows. And I felt every single moment and word fully. And I am so glad that my 20-something self saved that moment for me now. Yeah. Wow. You're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> well, good. Thank that's you. That's <laughs> so powerful. I mean, that's, uh, yeah. And, you know, in the end, it's like the people that really care for you are going to stand by you. I'm sure there's been some fractured relationships from that or something. Oh, like my that. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. 
Why did you feel that travel was essential to the evolution of who you wanted to become? Because at that point, you're, at least the way you describe it in the book, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you were searching for the woman you wanted to become in some ways, you know, kind of like trying to, whatever that means, you know, it means a lot of different things to people. And we, do we ever really find out, you know, we're always searching, we're always kind of growing and changing, but there is a level of stability. I think you reach after such a chaotic time like that, you know, for everybody, it's not that, that they feel that travel is, is necessary to the evolution of the, who they want to become, but for, for me and for some people and a lot of people on this show, I feel like that's been a big thing. And some people can look at that and say, well, using travel to kind of run away and, you know, wherever you go, there you are and that sort of thing. Okay. That's an argument, but there is something about it. If it's calling you as a part of your self-development, as a part of your journey, I feel like it's important to answer that call. Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. You know, when I was working on Call You When I Land, Um, The reason it's not just a memoir, the reason it's a travel memoir is because I wanted the thread of travel to be this underlying like constant throughout all of this kind of tumultuous life change. And what I realized in writing the book that I don't think I realized at the time was how much my relationship to the act of traveling had evolved with me as I grew. So in the beginning of the book, travel is this crutch. It's this ability, it's this way for me to run away from my life, to hide from my problems. And you find that I use travel in an unhealthy codependent way. I use it in this way where it's almost like a drug, where it's like life gets hard and I hit the road and I look for every excuse I can to just run away. And that changes when I make the decision to call off my wedding and I make the decision to stop avoiding my life, but instead to face it head on. And then this evolution with travel comes where it becomes a way for me to chase a career. And you see me running all around the world, trying to become a travel writer and editor and chasing stories that have a lot of meaning to me. And travel becomes like the Shel Silverstein giving tree. I take so much from it that at the end of it, it's just this used tree stump where every trip becomes something that I'm siphoning off a story or social media post or something for invisible readers and followers. And by the time the book ends and I'm now kind of older and I've had all these years from the beginning of the book to then, I realize that travel becomes something for me, which it is today, something like an old friend where I look at the act of traveling as it has given me everything that I value most in my life. It's given me my career. It's given me my husband. It's given me my friends. It's given me experiences. It's even given me my pets. You know, my dog is my favorite travel souvenir. We got him while we were in Belize. So everything that I value and everything that I love has come from traveling. And so there really is this kind of full circle moment where you see that relationship with travel evolve throughout the book. And so that's why when people ask me what the book is about, I always say, you know, there's a lot in there. There's a love story. It's a coming of age story. It's a little bit of a murder mystery. It's it's all of this, these life moments sort of packed into a book, but ultimately it's a travel story. I hadn't thought of the relationship with travel the way you described it. And in the beginning, taking that first stage you described of 
kind of using it to escape escapism, let's call it. And yet, perhaps that's that is a necessary part of it for some people to get to the point where then you can make the decision and, and stuff like that. You mentioned the emotional distance for making that decision to be a runaway bride, you know, for lack of a better term, but I know it's a term you, you use, so I feel comfortable using it. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, would you get to that point if you weren't doing all the running away in the first place? Did you need the physical distance too to kind of perhaps subconsciously process some of this stuff before it could consciously come out before you could shout out the words I'm not in love anymore or you know having that oh yeah oh my revelation gosh. yes and this is the thing where when I ran to Argentina it felt like I couldn't breathe in New York anymore I couldn't think straight I couldn't there was no oxygen left in the city there was so much pressure 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 building around me and all these inquisitive stares of what's going on with her why doesn't she look happy why is she not this glowing Hollywood-esque vision of a bride. And it took me physically removing myself from the state, the country, <laughs> to, to find that distance. And it's not to say that if you need some sort of emotional revelation or epiphany, you need to fly all the way to the end of South America. Absolutely not. You know, I could have probably <laughs> found that same revelation in upstate New York by myself. <laughs> but at the time, I was feeling very, you know, just very dramatic and chaotic. And I had sort of this, all these rot feelings that it felt right to me at that time to book that trip. And also, that trip was tied to an assignment that I was pursuing because at the same time, I was also trying to have this career as a travel editor and writer. But I fully believe that the act of travel is really about getting out of your comfort zone and placing yourself somewhere new. And whether that is an hour away, whether that's a train ride away, or whether that's a flight across an ocean or across a continent, that's on you to decide. But for anybody listening, I don't want them to feel that they have to empty their wallets and fly to the other end of the world in order to have these profound moments of epiphany. It's really just about allowing yourself space and time away from your everyday life to just be with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you get into that situation that you just described, where whether it's an hour away or halfway across the world, you're right. It's It just forces you if you're setting up an environment where you are intentionally, let's say forcing yourself inward, but perhaps, perhaps a bit of that, perhaps giving yourself the space to do your inner exploration, something's going to come out of that. And I mean, travel just can't help but do that, especially solo travel, right? Like you might not even want, you might not want it to happen. <laughs> you know, it might be like, oh, you know, why, why is this trip turning into this whole self you know, I, I think if you've traveled enough, maybe you've been there and it's, it's like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be just kind of relaxing and enjoying. Why am I like assessing my life and trying to figure out these, you know, big decisions? I'm not coming back to that yet. I'm away, but yet there you are trying to figure it out. And I think you just, the space helps. At least Absolutely. it helped me. <laughs> it does help. And also I want to just like preface this by saying that not every trip needs to be this like emotional overhaul of your life. I've had many trips <laughs> where I was just on a trip and I actually, when I was writing the book and I mentioned those journals and I was looking at all these trips I had taken over the years, 
there's a good amount of trips that didn't make the book because quite honestly, nothing miraculous happened on those trips as far as like emotional development or like life transition. They were just really good trips. And so, yeah. Nobody wants to hear about really good trips. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody (laughs) wants to hear just hear about me like having a great time in Marrakesh. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's the thing. So it's like not all travel needs to be this like overhaul of your like emotional self. And, um, yeah. And I, and you know, the thing is, is that travel ultimately is escapism. And if I had never decided I wanted to make it a career, it might very much still be escapism for me as it is for many people, a way of just stepping out of their everyday life. But it's because I wanted to turn it into a career. I wanted to make travel the focal point of my life that I was able to have that sort of evolution with the act of traveling and what it means to me. Yeah. I think that is an important point that it's okay to just travel. I mean, even if you're taking a career break or you're taking a year off or whatever, and you expect that it's going to lead to something, it's still something about taking the pressure off and just letting the journey unfold is, is special in and of itself. But yeah, I mean, there's the escapism side we talked about, but then also when you travel in a certain way and, and you go to certain places and see certain things, there's the realism aspect. You're seeing parts of the world that, so, you know, this is the way people are living or you're seeing in some cases how the majority of people in the world live, which is a huge, there's a huge gap between how a lot of us live in Western society and how the majority of the world lives. So you might be trying to escape something and then being confronted with the reality of the world. And then these two forces are just, yeah, it's just a crazy blender where but a lot that's of things a good can point. happen. No, but that's a really good point. And it is exactly what you just said that made me want to turn it into a career because it was understanding at a certain point, I was kind of exhausted of exploring my own emotional dramas in the context of a beautiful place. And I wanted to sort of turn the focus outward and look at the place I was standing in and what's happening there and the people there and the stories there. So that was really the driving force of me wanting to become a travel editor and a travel journalist. Um, You know, it wasn't about, well, maybe actually, to be honest, in the beginning, maybe it was really about in my 20s, like I just wanted to travel and I saw that career as a way to do that in a way that was sustainable. But when I start getting into my late twenties and early thirties, and there's that kind of like level of maturity now setting in, it starts to become much more about the story and realizing the responsibility to represent someone's voice and to tell a story and how that can impact other people when they approach a destination. And uh, when I got my first on-staff editor job, I was so excited because I had the ability to now pursue those stories. And uh, and one of those stories early on in my career that really, really kind of defined how I became as a writer and also kind of set me on course was both personal and political. And that was the one about Colombia and my great aunt and how she was murdered and how that kind of tied into the very um, unique political atmosphere of Colombia at that time. I know you're um, originally from Colombia. I'm not sure when you moved to the U.S. We can ask about that. But this is a obviously a very important part of, of your life. This is part of who you are. And 
it's not just that. I mean, you you make that clear. I see in all your bylines, like on your website, you have published author, senior travel editor, public speaker, Colombian immigrant. You have Columbia immigrant list, listed on your Instagram as one of the bullet points. So this is this is something that's very important to you. I want to talk about your heritage, your background, and why why you feel it's important to make that prominent uh, in terms of your work and yeah, who you are and all yeah. Of that. I mean, I immigrated to the country when I was young. My parents moved from Bogota to Miami, and being Colombian was this very elusive thing for me growing up. I am Colombian. I hold dual citizenship. I was born in Bogota. My family's Colombian. My relatives are Colombian. I have this whole well of sort of Colombian culture to pull from. And yet I grew up in Chicago and I don't have an accent. And I had all my formative years in the United States. And visually, I'm very white passing as a Latina. And so it felt like this part of me growing up that I was and yet couldn't fully embody because it just felt so distant. And growing up, becoming an adult and going back to Colombia as a journalist and allowing myself to really get to know that country and discover that country and spend time with relatives there um, just helped me not only embrace the fact that I'm Colombian, but to find a pride in being Colombian that I always sort of had, but didn't know how to own. And so that's why it's just a prominent part of, of what I consider myself to be because I love Colombia. I love the country that I come from. I love everything it represents to me. I love the memories I have of Colombia and how it existed throughout my childhood and how certain relatives of mine embody the culture of that country. I love everything about Colombia. I wish I could go there on a monthly basis. And, um, and I want to represent Colombia in a way that is positive and in a way that feels right to me. And so often, Colombia is represented in a way that is not positive and that is associated with violence and that's associated with drugs. And Colombian women are represented in a way that is overtly sexualized. And so I think there's something very important about realizing that Colombia is a country that is layered and Colombian people also, there's not one look. You can, the, the way Colombians look, I can, I am Colombian. I would never, nobody would ever guess I'm Colombian. Most people think I'm Greek. Um, and other people, you know, just, I love the diverse fabric of Colombia and the culture. And um, in my writing, that's something that I just really, really want to try to highlight and embrace and make known that I'm just proud to be Colombian. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, are, where do you live now? I live in New York. You still live in New York. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, you mentioned the high sort of high pressure environment there. That, that was a part of it too, being in the city, trying to, you know, build that life and, and sort of the the regular job and the whole thing, leaving that behind along with your wedding and everything else kind of 
I know we're jumping all over the place here, but you ended up <laughs> back in New York. I was wondering, like, why why don't you guys move to Columbia or what, you know, why don't you base somewhere else? What is the uh, attraction? I mean, New York is an incredible city. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm just curious for you. <laughs> well, you know, when I called off the wedding um, and it was just me, I initially wanted to run away from New York. <laughs> so I uh, had set my sights on actually attending graduate school in London. And I figured that that would be a great way for me to just get out of the country. I was willing to take on entirely too much student loan debt on top of my undergraduate student loan debt. But I wanted, I saw it as a way of moving this dream of becoming a travel writer forward getting a master's degree in journalism, and also just a way to live abroad and sort of have those expenses folded in to the cost of just student living. So I was all set on leaving New York. And uh, and then I met Jeff, my now husband. And Jeff is uh, one of those rare birds. He's a born and bred New Yorker. And his entire life is here, as are his family and his parents who are elderly. And so once we began building a life here, it just became very clear that like New York needed to be home base. And maybe one day, one day we may leave New York when the timing is right. But for now, it feels important to be here, to be close to his family and to his parents and to just stay in New York because... He's a filmmaker and stand-up comedian, and New York really is an epicenter for that. And me as a writer and journalist, the world of publishing is here in New York. So it really um, it works for us both right now to call New York home. As much as we love remote work and yeah. being location <laughs> independent here on the Zero to Travel podcast, I think there is a lot of value in going to the epicenter of insert X, Y, or Z industry. Right. It's just getting around those people. Like if you're in startup world, you might want to go out to San Francisco or Austin. And yeah, it's crazy expensive and all, but there is something about going and being around all of the things because it does inevitably, if you're if you're putting yourself out there with enough attention, I think it can lead to something. By the way, did you get a did Jeff try to pick you up with a like some funny pickup line because he's a comedian? Did he try what was his um, what was his move? <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. We actually we met on Tinder. Yeah. We're one of the few success stories. And uh his profile was actually funny. It was kind of a joke which prompted me to reach out. And um, but you know, the funny thing is is that when I had exited what was my ex engagement and that relationship, it was uh I was with that person for years. So when I went into that relationship with that person, um, online dating and dating apps were few and far between. It wasn't as ever, it wasn't as commonplace as it is now, and uh, and online dating was still very much shrouded in kind of like skepticism and you know and be afraid, be very afraid. <laughs> and so when I met Jeff, I um, I was very wary of meeting him in person. When he suggested it, I was like, what? <laughs> My fear was that he would not be the person that he portrayed himself to be online. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the normal meet. fear of online dating, right? The profile yes, picture yes, is not going to match up. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. I was very afraid, but, um, Jeff was 
the first and only person that I met through online dating. I had downloaded the app. I had probably been kind of tinkering with it for like a couple weeks. And then he was like the only guy that I really felt comfortable reaching out to and enjoyed talking to. And certainly the only person that I agreed to meet in person. So um, it was a happy ending. (laughs) One and done. One and done. (laughs) With the the online dating. Nice. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks. So they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. You have a chapter in the book about your love-hate relationship, let's call it, with travel blogging, the the monkeys and travel blogging. Oh, you're going right in there for the throat. You're like, oh, I've been waiting for this one. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just curious because, I mean, not, of course... You know, it's not like everybody's travel blogging, but to make this a wider question, you know, if you're listening to the show, you're probably interested in travel, which means you may be following some social media or travel related things that people are putting out there. And yeah, so it's just, you know, you're behind the scenes on all this. We talked about this way back in 2015 when you were taking some of the press trips and you were giving some advice on that and stuff. But yeah, I'm just curious because you, you do edit and write about travel for a living and you get behind the scenes a lot of these 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 trips where there's a, you know press or i mean you can explain the industry better than i can but <laughs> yeah just talk about why did you include that that chapter and i just want to hear your thoughts around all that yeah okay so when you and i last spoke many many moons ago i was uh Again, it's such an interesting moment in time because I was really just getting started on this journey of trying to be a travel writer and travel editor. And what I had found was that I could not get a job as a travel writer, travel editor. It was so difficult. I had been out of college by that point for maybe four plus years. 
I had left college with a journalism degree trying to be a journalist and there were just no jobs at the time. And I kind of ended up stumbling into other careers that weren't right, but kind of just fit the needs at that time, PR, marketing, advertising. And so by the time I grabbed my life back, I called off the wedding and and I left advertising, I found that it was very difficult to get a job. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up starting a travel blog. And my hope with the travel blog was that I could build enough of a platform and enough of an online portfolio that it could help me one day parlay it into a job. It worked. And, uh, it worked. It did. It did eventually work, my plan. It took many, many, many years. But, but the thing is with blogging is that I never wanted to really do it. It was just sort of like a con, like a like a second best option. And when I moved into the world of blogging, um, what I found was that it is such a huge, wide, varied world. And you have bloggers that are truly phenomenal writers, phenomenal, phenomenal. And they edit their blog with like the vigor of a New York Times senior editor. And then you have bloggers that just kind of are in it for the free swag and the free trips and the free sponsored content and whatever it is. And and writing is an afterthought. And they could care less about imagery or text. It's really just about getting XYZ free things. And then you have the bloggers where it's all about image, where it's all about those photos that are curated to look like Vogue fashion spreads. And there's just, the writing is really just a caption that holds a platitude that complements a post. And so this world of blogging, I found fascinating. And when I entered it, I tried to fit into all the molds. I tried to be the one that was curating awesome imagery with like quotes about wanderlust. And and that just felt so scratchy against my skin. I felt so uncomfortable. I hate taking selfies. I, I hate being the person to like set up my phone and pose in public. I feel so self-conscious about it. And it shows in the imagery. And then to pair it with some empty quote that I didn't even write just feels like, oh my gosh. And I also tried doing the sponsored post thing and I would get like free sunglasses in exchange for a post. And and that felt empty to me too, because it was just like devoid of passion to be quite honest, you know, like how passionate can I get in a 1000 word blog post about sunglasses? (laughs) It's just, and I didn't need it. It's like, I didn't need the free sunglasses. And, and, and so that taught me something too. And what I kept coming back to was writing that I really, really, really love writing. And I love telling a story. And so much of the world of writing for blogs, it fragments even further. You have people who write blogs that are all about themselves and their life and and whatever's going on with them. And that's wonderful and vulnerable and fascinating. But I had outgrown that. I was tired of talking about being a runaway bride and I was tired of living in this moment that I had already grown past. So I didn't want to write like that anymore. And what I wanted to write felt like I needed a platform that it could reach readers. And so ultimately that chapter is about me outgrowing blogging and it's and it was a hard chapter to write because I wanted to show that 
with very little judgment because I also want to acknowledge that I was playing the game in all the right and all the wrong ways. I wanted to show that I had flipped my life upside down in pursuit of a dream, in pursuit of becoming a travel writer. And I had started this travel blog and it had taken so much to just get to that point. And then I get there and I'm just like, none of this fits. And then I'm just at a loss. And so I framed that blog in the context of being lost in Borneo physically, because at that time I'm like, I accidentally got lost in Borneo. And when I'm recovered and I'm sort of like, you know, sailing down the river through the Borneo jungle, I end the chapter by saying that I still feel like a part of me is lost out there in the wilderness. And it's because it's very symbolic of that moment in time. I was. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I had started this thing that I had outgrown already, that I had become disenchanted with, and there were no clear jobs to becoming a travel editor or a on-staff travel writer. And I had just quit my career in advertising, and I had let go of my home back in New York. And I was just like, where do I go from here? So that chapter... um, While it's meant definitely to poke fun at the world of blogging, it's more so to to just look at kind of how I never really fit in that world to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate the the transparency and the way you described it. Well, how did you bridge the gap then? And this can... Maybe there's some advice here for anybody that's trying to bridge a gap in another industry or or whatever. You know, you're in the place where you, you want to do the thing and then you're trying, but it's not working. And now you're the senior editor. You've done, I want to talk about (laughs) Unearth Women too, because I know that was a a big experience in your life. Yeah. How did you bridge that gap? Was it a mindset? I mean, there's obviously both sides, right? You need the practical aspects. You need the mindsets. How did you- Uh, Freelance writing. I have to say, uh, what I realized was that I was, I'm glad that I did the blogging it did allow me to have a platform. Most importantly, to just give practical advice, starting a blog allowed me to build an individual brand that I just continued to build upon over the years. And the important thing about that is it allowed me to start social media channels that focused on my traveling and travel writing. And it allowed me to showcase my writing and to have a place on the internet that was very reflective of just my abilities. And that's something that I do not, um, I do not take for granted nor underestimate its impact on me eventually getting a job. What I did realize though, is that to be an on-staff editor or writer, I needed to have published bylines with publications that weren't just my blog. So I began freelance writing. I began pitching stories. I began connecting with editors here in New York and really just trying to, insert myself in the industry. It just sort of felt like it felt like the industry had closed a door in my face and I just kind of walked around the house and climbed in through a window. <laughs> like that's just <laughs> what it felt like. And right. um and it worked. It worked. And um I just I my first on staff editor role was for a publication called Culture Trip that had just opened its New York offices. And so I had joined a startup which was wonderful in the sense that they took a chance on me. Again, someone years out of college without an on-staff editorial role to speak of and only a blog and a handful of published bylines. They took a chance on me and I will always appreciate them for that. And 
being part of a startup allowed me to experience things that maybe joining an established legacy publication might not have. And as anyone who works at a startup knows, you have your on-paper job, and then you have all the other hats that you have to wear because it's a all hands on deck situation. So culture trip, I was hosting and filming online video series. I was doing social media. I was reporting on stories 20 times a month in addition to editing stories. And it just was, it was like throwing me in the deep end of what it means to be a travel editor and a travel writer. And, um, and because of that job, I was able to grow and, just insert myself in the industry and get jobs from there on out. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's great advice for anybody, really. The idea of the personal brand, as you mentioned, building it and growing it over time. And I I love that, you know, you did it in your way. That's the thing. I think sometimes you can think, oh, personal brand, and you might automatically get these ideas of what that means. And it's like, ooh, I don't like, no, that seems, that's icky. Like, you know, some of the things you mentioned that didn't attract you to travel blogging, for example. But it doesn't have to be that because you can do it however you want, right? It's yours. So you can just put yourself out however you want. You might not even have to put out pictures of yourself if you don't want to do that. But you can still have, you can still build that. And, you know, I some people do that on LinkedIn or whatever the case is. You know, it's not necessarily has to be a published website. But I do think there's, that's the advice I just wanted to hone on, hint on what you shared, which is we, if we treat ourselves like, say, a a celebrity or somebody who's in entertainment as an example might treat their career, you know, and, and how they would kind of structure things and like, you know, treat it seriously. Like, okay, this is, this is my brand. What I want to represent. I want to show that I've done writing in, in national geographic or whatever. I want to show that I'm, you know, you can build that up over time. And I think that's, that was just what I wanted to pull out from your story. Cause I thought that was pretty great advice for anybody. Yeah. And what you said also... It's the window. It's the sneaky window. The sneaky window. (laughs) But what you said rings so true. And I want to circle back on something. Um, You know, when it comes to your personal brand, your social media, all of that, like when I was in my 20s and I was trying to insert myself into the world of blogging, part of the reason it felt so uncomfortable was that I was trying to emulate what worked for other people. And especially on social media, I was trying to mirror those, you know, dazzling influencer photos and those, uh, those, you know, lovely quotes and the twirly dresses in front of the Eiffel Tower. I was trying to do what works for others, but I didn't realize that it wasn't working for me. And so to your point, my relationship with social media has evolved because now my social media very much reflects me as an adult. It reflects my work. It reflects my passions. I'm very private in the sense that I really only share glimmers of my personal life where I feel comfortable to. So you'll see like photos of my recent wedding. Obviously, I'm just like over the moon about that. So I just want to share like little pops of my personal life when and where it feels right. But at the end of the day, it's your brand, it's your social media, and it should be reflective of you. And I think that that's something I didn't realize until just talking to you, that that's why it felt so uncomfortable to me in my 20s, because it wasn't about me and my brand. It was about trying to mirror other people's brands that I had seen success for and not really being true to my own voice and my own presence. Yeah. I think that's if anybody's listening and they're in the mirroring 
part of things in their own creative work or whatever. I, I do think that can be a part of the creative work or, or developing your craft as well, right? You know, even as a writer, I'm sure maybe there were times where I, I might read a book that inspires me and, and try to incorporate some of that writing style to see how it turns out and just the way that author structures things or the way they use humor or whatever the case is. And, you, you know, you can get inspired by that. Personally, I think like that can be a part of the process, right? The, the yeah. mirroring and the trying oh, things out. But then, you know, yeah, you get the inspiration. But then, like you said, when it's not matching up, it's good to pivot, let's say. Let's say you want to build up social media or whatever the case is for your personal brand. I think it's important to treat it as if you have tens of thousands of people, even if you have four, right? There's something to that too, just about treating it like... What would a professional do here is a question I, I like to ask myself sometimes when I'm feeling stuck, you know? You know, the thing is too, and I've, um, w- the, if you have four followers, if you have 5,000, if you have 100,000 followers, like you cannot underestimate the level of influence that you have. So let's say that you go on a trip and you decide to ride elephants in Thailand, which is largely a pretty unethical animal tourism experience. You put those photos on your Instagram and you may only have a hundred followers, but some of those people might look at those photos and think, wow, I need to do that when I go to Thailand. And because they saw what you posted, they're going to go ahead and book that experience without knowing that there may be supporting an unethical animal activity. My point is, not to get in my soapbox about ethical animal activities, that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> but my point is, is that you can absolutely influence people, and so you should never underestimate the impact and the power of influence, and it's not about quantifying it with a number of followers. It's about realizing that what you put out there, people see, and what they see can sometimes enact change and can also influence decision-making. And you don't have to be a major influencer to have that power. Even the ability to influence how your family travels, how your friends travel, what you're sharing with your own personal network has an impact. And especially as travelers, people who are routinely traveling or writing about travel or who are in the travel industry, people in our worlds look to us as experts in the space. I know that my friends and family are always asking me about tips for travel or where to travel or when to travel or what to do in certain destinations. So if you are that person in your network, your influence holds even more power. And so what you put on your social media, it's it's influential and it's impactful. And so definitely don't get hung up on the number of followers because people still turn to you and what you're putting out there as a kind of weather vane on the travel industry. That's a great point. It seems that with your career, a lot of your passion, what you are excited about and what where you fit in within the travel industry and all of that seem to coalesce and come together with Unearth Women in some ways, which was a feminist travel magazine. Killing Your Darlings was something talked about. It's always a tough thing. <laughs> if, if you haven't heard that term before, we're going to talk about that because I know you had a pretty emotional moment when you had to kind of let that go. I thought it was important to talk about this because I, I love the spirit behind when I saw what you launched and everything. I thought, this is so cool. 
this is such a great thing. And and I was not alone because there was a lot of, you were getting a lot of attention and press around the launch of Unearthed Women. And rightfully so. I thought it was a great idea, you know, put something out like that. And, you know, having that much passion and that much excitement invested in something and and having the end result maybe not working out the way you you imagined, I would love to hear, you, you can just give people an overview on what Unearthed Women was, but I would love to hear a bit more about First of all, I, I shouldn't ask multi-tiered questions, but here I go. The process of honing in on, you're a passionate person, you have a lot of different things that excite you, but you honed in on something and then you and you went for that. So it was like kind of figuring that out, choosing that, that whole process, and, and then launching it. And then we can talk about kind of the aftermath, I suppose, but... Yeah. You know. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, the aftermath, it's funny because when we were talking about Call You When I Land... Um, you know, in writing the memoir, I had said that so much of what happened, I now had kind of the distance of time to reflect back on. The hardest part of the book for me was Unearth Woman, was writing about the Unearth Woman experience. Because, you know, the runaway bride and calling off the wedding, it's like at this point, it feels so emotionally removed and so distant that it's almost like hitting my talking points. It's like, yes, that happened. And then that happened. And, you know, it's like, I know, I know all the points to hit. Unearth Woman very much feels, still feels like a raw, open wound that is healing and it's very tender. So when I had started Unearth Woman, I was, uh, I just lost my job and I was just kind of once again adrift in an open sea of my career, trying to figure out next steps. And at this point in time, it coincided with the rise of the Me Too movement, the rise of the Time's Up movement, and sort of this reckoning happening across industries of women that were just calling out toxic men and also calling out toxic industries. And what I had seen was that every industry from Hollywood to Wall Street was having having their own reckoning, but the travel industry had not yet had theirs. And I spoke at a conference uh, for women's travel around that time, and on a panel focused on sexism in the travel industry, which to me really felt like that first moment of that conversation happening on a public scale. And the response was so powerful. It was heartbreaking. It was inspiring. It was just to see the resilience of women in the industry across the board, women who are experiencing, you know, sexism in the office, women who are being overly sexualized while traveling, women of color and what they have to put up with when moving through the world, it really just kind of coalesced into this fury that I wanted to do something outlandish. And the only tools that I have in my arsenal are writing and editing. And I wanted to create a publication that effectively went up against the Goliath of media and said, this is for the women. This is for the women in the travel space. Travel media is so often, especially at that time, male-dominated. Most of the travel hosts are men. Most of the articles are kind of written by men or about men adventuring through the world. And articles by women were so focused on this eat, pray, love effect and how do we deal with our feelings in beautiful places. And I wanted to create a publication that very squarely stood up against that. 
And so Unearthed Women was that concept, the concept of unearthing women's stories around the globe. And the first step in creating Unearthed Women was to realize that I have a very limited set of skills when it comes to launching a business, which is to say I have none. (laughs) And uh, my strengths are writing and editing. So I teamed up with a handful of women that I admire in the industry who could fill in those gaps, women that do have experience with startups and women that have experience with fundraising or that have experience with sales or advertising. And so we started a Kickstarter we managed to get just enough money to print about 100 copies of Unearthed Women. And um, and we wanted to do a physical magazine because it felt even more outlandish to do that. And the thing is, is that going back to the world of blogging, you know, it's so hard when you start a website from scratch for it to gain traction, to get that following. It could take years. But there was something about printing a magazine and putting it out there and having the audacity to do that in the digital age that kind of pulled Unearthed Women to the front of the line. And the mentality was always that if the magazine succeeds, it will spill over to digital. And um, we put out the print magazine. And to your point, it had this unprecedented meteoric rise that I don't think anyone expected. I mean, within a year, Unearth Woman went from an idea that I had while unemployed to suddenly a magazine that was sold in over 800 Barnes & Noble locations across the country that had gotten an investor that was featured in the New York Times and Good Morning America and it just had this like huge like blow out the gate and um and the thing is is that you know, we're at that point, a young team, we're all kind of stumbling into this world of like media and what it means to launch a publication. And, um, Unearthed Woman was not sustainable. The print magazine was not sustainable. And we probably put out four issues. Um, and these are quarterly issues. So four times a year. So we probably put out four issues And then we flatlined. We flatlined financially and we had to pull the magazine. And while that didn't mean the death of Unearthed Woman, certainly the website continued and still continues on today, it really meant um, a loss for me. And to go back to what you were saying, Killing Your Darlings is a concept in creative writing where writers are forced to axe a superfluous plot or character in reverence of the larger story. And it's a really painful part of creative writing that you put all this effort into building up a character or a storyline just to end up editing it out in the end because it actually just doesn't add a lot. That was Unearthed Woman Print Magazine. It was something that never really needed to exist. And it was something that I just, I had to kill. And um, and I detail that meteoric rise and and spectacular fall uh, in the memoir. And uh, I'm very honest about it to a fault about my mistakes and what led to kind of the mismanaging of finances and how Unearthed Woman flatlined. And I want to be honest about it because so often you hear the success stories, but there's a real beauty in the failures as well and how we grow from it. What did you learn from that? Well, I learned that I'm not good at business. 
But you I mentioned mean, partnering with uh, <laughs> other people. So you, it sounds like you made the right moves in that yeah. way. Don't, um, hey, listen, <laughs> you can always start another one. You've, you've learned yeah. a lot from the experience, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, your blog is its own business. I mean, you've been, yeah. don't sell you yourself know, short, Nikki. Come on. I, <laughs> no, but the thing is, is that what I learned from it is, yes, I'm not very good at business, but really the lesson I took away is that I am fully a writer and an editor. And when I did Unearth Woman, one of the mistakes I realized in retrospect was I treated Unearth Woman like I had just been hired to be an on-staff editor for another publication. And I could leave it up to someone else to manage the company finances and operations and everything. And I could just focus on writing. And obviously, um, when it's a publication you founded, that's not a reality. And so the real lesson for me with Unearth Woman was that it's just not my lane. I wasn't happy dealing with talks about budget and marketing and company operations and all of these things. I was happy being a writer and being an editor. And so Unearth Woman really gave me a lesson and sort of pointed me in my career down the path of this is what I'm meant to do. I'm meant to be an on-staff editor. I'm meant to be a travel writer. I'm meant to just focus on the creative part of telling stories and leave all the stuff of business to someone else. And Unearth Woman, for as painful as it was to lose, I I don't regret it because it got me again to where I needed to go. And that is today I I'm so happy being a senior editor at Photos Travel. It really is everything that I was hoping to find when I set out on this journey many, many, many years ago. And um, an Unearth Woman really pointed me in that direction. First of all, congratulations to just to come up with a concept. To, well, to get in, into an event and have a hard discussion in the panel that you mentioned, and then to see the the response, and just just to have a to create a conversation in a space like that, and then to carry that forward with a vision to then launch something that got so much traction because it was resonating with so many people. I mean, kudos to you. That's just incredible. And you know. So sorry it didn't it didn't work out for you, but at the same time, you know it made an impact and it certainly got a lot of attention for a reason. So I just I just really admire the fact that you just kind of went there and did it. You know, you had to kill your darling in the end, but it was still it was still something that you created, and I, I think that's that's really cool. And hey, listen, now you're back in your zone of genius, as they call it, right? You get to <laughs> yeah. create and tell stories and do the things you love. You know, it would be a shame if we didn't talk about destinations. I mean, ah, you've traveled yeah. all over. You're a travel editor for a major publication. I mean, you wrote a travel memoir. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about travel. <laughs> we should. Well, we've been talking about travel, but, uh, you know, we got to mix a little destination stuff in here. I don't like to ask people what their favorite destinations are because that's that's like a just a bad question. It's just not a good question. <laughs> but I do think it speaks volumes if you could share a few of the places that you've been that you would love to go back to because I think that that's an extra level of commitment that, you know, yeah, because there's so many places to explore. And I think as as travelers, we can tend to want to find the next shiny new or, you know, go to the next new country. And it, of course, that's exciting. But when you're willing to get on a plane and go back to somewhere you've been, that says a lot. I used to be really against going back to places because I just felt like there's always a new place to discover. But when I went back to Argentina last year, 
that was such a great experience to revisit a place that had such meaning in my life and to do so at a different time in my life. So to go back to Buenos Aires and Iguazu National Park years later was so cool to see what I remembered and how it had kind of lived up in my memory. And so I'd love to do that again. Uh, I have my eyes set on Bali. I had such a moment in Bali and in Borneo. I'd love to go back to Indonesia and just kind of have those experiences again, but this time years later. And um, I went to South Africa for my honeymoon, and I'm already thinking of how my husband and I should go back like in 10 years and retrace our honeymoon and how cool would that be. So I really see a value now in going back to places that you love and that held a lot of meaning for you at a point in time. I love that. My wife and I are coming up on 10 years since our honeymoon, so maybe we should steal that idea and go re- retrace oh, our honeymoon steps. Oh, you should. Congratulations. With, with, ki- with kids in tow this time. <laughs> oh, my God. You should. 100% you should. I love that. That would be so cool. A- any other places that you would say are getting a lot of attention? We're always looking for some good off-the-beaten-track destinations. I'm just wondering if any jump to mind for you. Well, I would definitely recommend, shameless plug, checking out Foders. We're going to be publishing our annual go list, and that is tons and tons and tons of destinations that we love, that we have on our radar, that are up and coming. We put together this list every year. And so really, I would check it out. It publishes this month. And uh, you could also check out our Photos Finest Hotel Awards. And that shares hotels around the world that we have vetted at different price points. And that is amazing, too. That's a great resource. Cool. I'm a sucker for those types of lists. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Oh, my God. They're so fun to work on. (laughs) Can you share a small or big act of kindness that you've experienced on the road that you've never forgotten? Oh my gosh. Yes. Actually, recently, um, my husband and I, we were in Cape Town and we were staying, um, we were staying actually in a town called Hermanus, which is at the very, very, very bottom of South Africa and really the very tip of Africa as a whole. And it got hit by a massive storm massive. I mean, they were saying that this was a storm unlike any they had seen in decades. And uh, it had gale force winds. It washed out roads. And we were cut off. We were cut off in Hermanus. We were supposed to only be there two nights and continue on, but we literally could not leave Hermanus. The roads were just completely blocked off and they had turned into rivers essentially because you have all the runoff water from the mountains. And uh, we were staying at a hotel called Birkenhead House. And uh, this hotel, very kindly, um, they literally gave us a port in the storm. The hotel owner, they put us up for another night free of charge. They fed us. They gave us a wonderful room. And they literally just took pity (laughs) on two honeymooners marooned in the bottom of South Africa with nowhere to go. And, and we have this like little rental car that we had rented in Cape town city. And we're just like, we were just like, what do you mean? There's only three roads out of the city and they're all washed out. (laughs) So like this, it was just such an act of kindness. And I couldn't believe that when we went to check out, um, 
they didn't charge us. I just thought that was so, so kind because they went above and beyond to take care of us. And so um, that was a real act of kindness to help some fellow travelers out during a storm. Given some of the ups and downs we discussed today, I was curious what success means to you now. Oh, man. I am grappling with this right now, as a matter of fact. Um, It means a lot of things. I think uh, it's much more of a varied answer than maybe it was when I was in my 20s. In my 20s, success meant being an editor, maybe having a book one day, kind of, you know, just really career focused. Check, check. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Check, check. But now... Success to me now, I think, just means fulfillment and happiness, contentment. I really value now my time. I value my time at home with my husband and our pets and finding a balance between fulfillment in my career and happiness at home. And I think that balance is a constant effort to achieve. Some days I achieve it. Some days it leans more towards career. Some days it leans much more towards home. But success to me is striking that balance between career happiness and happiness in the home. Yeah. Well, congratulations on everything. We should mention Thank the book so again. Much. And I mean, you can be found with various projects, but maybe you should just lay it all on the line here, Nikki. Tell us where, where everybody should uh, go to get in touch or, of course, the book Call You When I Land. And we'll link to all that in the show notes. But yeah, feel free to share any anything yes. else here. Yes. Well, Call You When I Land comes out November 7th from HarperCollins. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold. Uh, you can also pre-order the audiobook, which I actually did the reading for myself. So that was a fun experience. <laughs> and um, you are can you using find air quotes there? In- <laughs> yeah, it was it was interesting. I am not a voice actor, um, and there are all these tricks to voice acting that I did not know. For example, green apples. Green apples remove the like the pops and sounds in your mouth that can happen when recording. So trick of the trade there. (laughs) You eat a green apple before you record? They have slices of green apple. And if you're talking and you have sort of those mouth noises, like maybe like just like popping or crunchiness or whatever, um, the saliva in your mouth, the acidity within a green apple can help neutralize the sound so that the mic isn't picking up on it. So um, I was eating a lot of green apples. (laughs) It's healthy to record an audio book. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Um, but you can find the book wherever books are sold. And you can find me on Instagram at Nick Vargas. And I'm very responsive there. So yeah, feel free to reach out. And also you can pitch photos. If you're an aspiring travel writer or editor, we are always looking for new writers and new freelancers. And we work a lot with uh, people that are new to the industry. And we like to give them the opportunity to also go on press trips. So you can pitch us at pitches at photos.com. Cool. Can we not wait eight plus years to do this again, Nikki? (laughs) (laughs) Please, I hope we like catch up. Although I do, I have to say thank you not only for having me on today, but also thank you for taking a chance on me all those years ago because 
I was just getting started and I really didn't have much to show for it, but just this kind of blind ambition. So thanks for having me on all those years ago to really talk about an industry that I was just learning about. (laughs) Oh, you're sweet. I know greatness when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Sincerely, congrats on on everything. And yeah, look forward to staying in touch. And I, I mean, we have to cross paths at some point. I imagine we will at one of these conferences or trips or something. So let's just keep in touch. And yeah, I would love to have you back on sooner than later. So thank you so much. I wish I knew. I wish I knew that you lived in Norway because I was literally in Norway three times last year. Dang. <laughs> I know. I was in Oslo three separate times last year, just like through work. And then one was a family trip, but we were, I had this thing with Norway where I just kept going back to Norway. It just kept happening. <laughs> and I am oh. so sorry that I didn't know you live in Oslo because that yeah. was three opportunities missed, but I hope to oh. go back very soon. Well, I mean, did you do the sauna, <laughs> fjord sauna thing? Of course. I did it once in the winter and I jumped into the fjord and I did it also um, in the summer. Such a great, such a great feeling. Great, great city. Come back. You'll have to come back for mm. a fourth time. <laughs> All oh, right. I thanks will. again. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jason. Take care. There you have it. Want to thank Nikki Vargas once again for just being her, being willing to put herself out there, taking her time to come on the show, and want to congratulate her once again on her book. Check that out. She's an amazing writer, as you heard me mention in this show. And it was really great to hear how openly and honestly she discusses that relationship with travel and how it evolved over time. It really got me thinking about that myself. And that's one of the things I was thinking that came out of this interview for me was that idea of the relationship with travel isn't just about the style of travel. It's also about kind of how you use travel in some ways, right? For me now, I think as I'm thinking this out loud, I didn't plan on saying this, but it's just that uh, it's coming to mind. The the thing I'm most excited about when it comes to travel, yes, I love my own personal travel experiences and, and getting to see new things and all the things we love about travel, learning about other cultures, but also it's a lot about getting to show my kids the world. And that's probably one of the big shifts for me personally that is happening right now in terms of travel, at least when I'm with them traveling. And it makes sense. Of course, we have relationships in life with people and things or hobbies or whatever, those relationships change over time. And our relationship with travel will change over time as well. So some food for thought there. I'm going to leave you with a couple quotes that to me illustrates the one of the travel paradoxes, I would call it. First, quick reminder, zerototravel.com slash newsletter You can get all the goods for free over there. I send one out every week. And I must say, it's pretty fun to put together and I like sharing it with you. Thinking about doing a community trip next year in Norway or perhaps some other place? I don't know. I'm going to send out a survey about it. So if you want to be perhaps a part of that, you can sign up, see if there's enough interest. Uh, Sign up with the newsletter and you can fill out the survey and let me know when that goes out. Okay, these quotes, I found two. 
I searched for quotes on running away because, as you heard, a big part of Nikki's story was sort of facing the music in her own life, realizing she wasn't going to get married, becoming a runaway bride, all of that essentially leading to a life of travel. And a lot of people see travel as running away sometimes, and others don't. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute. Let me share these quotes first. First one's from Holly Black, The Darkest Part of the Forest is the name of the book that this one came from, who said, I need to stop fantasizing about running away to some other life and start figuring out the one I have. (laughs) There you go. And then the second one from Jimi Hendrix, who said, if I'm free, it's because I'm always running. And that is the paradox, (laughs) right? Sometimes, I know for me in my life, we can use travel to give us an opportunity to get away and discover things about ourselves in addition to discovering the world. And maybe that can lead to the fantasies that Holly was talking about, fantasizing about being in some foreign country and away from all the the stuff. And there is something to that. And then Jimi Hendrix, that feeling of freedom because he's running and he's on the road. And this reminded me of a parenting tip that I read. And I think this is helpful for adults too. This is what I alluded to at the beginning where I said this, this might help you see something you're working through or working on right now just a little bit differently, perhaps. Maybe give you a little bit of of peace of mind. So how this works is, let's say my son doesn't want to go to daycare today, and he's really sad and he's crying, and we do have to go because I have work to do, but at the same time, he's sad. And what you can say is, well, you know, you acknowledge the sadness. I can understand that you're sad. And, you know, both things can be true. You can be sad, but also we do have to go. Both things can be true. You can hold both things at the same time. We tend to want to see things in black and white instead of the shades of gray, right? It's either this or that. And for the most part, both things can be true. We hold a lot of things at once, right? We can be enjoying the freedom of running away and the freedom of the road and also perhaps be running away from some of our problems in some way. We're complicated individuals and that's okay that's the point both things can be true and that's okay so i just wanted to throw this out there as as i was kind of figuring out what to say here to wrap this up i think it's a a good reminder that just that it's it's more than just one thing or the other more than one thing can be true at the same time and just to acknowledge that and that's that's okay we can sit with that and we can be with that Whatever that means to you, I don't know what that means, but it's, it's been helping me when I run into these tough situations with the kids. It's been helping me in my life when I realize, oh, there's things going on. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I feel this way, but then I feel this way, and I'm confused, and it's like, well, both things can be true, and that's okay. So I just wanted to leave you with that and those two quotes. Both things can be true. Just remember that. Okay. I'll let you go now. Thanks for uh, sticking with me. Thanks for being a part of this listening community. You are an absolute rock star. Get in touch anytime and have a wonderful rest of your day. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.